Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, a theatrical production called Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. Most people know about the Wild West and the OK Corral and Doc Holliday and all that stuff, but they don't know about, you know, the Cracker Trail or Bone Mizell or people that were just, just every bit as colorful as the people you'd find out west. Henry Flagler attempts to extend his East Coast Railway off the Florida mainland to the Keys. He was a living legend on that railroad because of his uh, longevity. He started in about 1898 and he ran his last engine in 1952. African American history in Florida is traced back to the early 1500s. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Brevard Theatrical Ensemble has created a musical and dramatic presentation celebrating Florida's cracker culture. The 90-minute production, called Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, features songs and stories evocative of Florida pioneer life of the 1800s and early 1900s. Ruby Alba plays guitar and sings in this production. She's a fourth-generation Floridian whose ancestors lived the cracker lifestyle. My grandmother's parents lived in the central Florida area. They had some land and some cattle, true Florida crackers, um, between the area of Holopaw and Kenansville. And that's where my grandmother was raised and where she uh, learned all about what it took to crack the whip and do what you needed to do like the Florida crackers all over have learned how to do. Um, she was uh, a very, very sturdy pioneer woman. Uh, I never wanted to tangle with her because I felt like she could whip her weight in wildcats and then some. Alba's grandparents made a living from agricultural work and by selling the hides of various animals. When my mother was a young child, she and my granny were living in West Melbourne at the time, and they peeled cypress poles for a penny apiece. Um, and they also raised chickens and sold the eggs. Uh, but my uh, mother and my granny were pretty much self-sustaining because my grandpa, Oscar, was a hunter and fisherman. He was gone more than he was home. He spent his entire life and built his livelihood around the deer, fish, alligators, 
anything that he could hunt and bring home and tan the hides. My mother used to be absolutely thrilled when he would come rehart turn home from a trip because she would get to help him with tanning the hides and she became quite proficient at being able to stretch the hides out in the Florida sun and stretch them just the right amount so that she didn't stretch a hole in them because my grandpa Oscar would say, girly, we can't have them with holes because they won't sell for enough money. So she had to be very careful and learn the craft at her daddy's knee and be able to do exactly the way he showed her how to do it. While her parents were raised in a cracker household, Abba says that as adults they got away from that lifestyle, but Abba herself still remembers growing up in what was once rural Florida. By the time my parents uh, got married and I came into being and my brothers and sisters, we kind of got away from that a little bit. Um, but I remember hearing my mom telling the stories that uh, she and Granny um, had done. Uh, my granny was actually a charter member, um, helped to build a little church down in West Melbourne and was a charter member there and mom played the piano and so they had roots in that area that just went completely down beyond where you can imagine roots would go. Um, my uh, aunts and uncles all kind of lived on the same street and uh, it was just one big long plot divided up and each person had a home and that's that was what I remember growing up as a child so by then West Melbourne had started to grow a little bit and it was still just a small two-lane highway coming down 192 and when you got to the edge out there where the interstate is now there wasn't much of a road between there and Orlando and when we would make trips between the two places we kind of rode over what seemed like a washboard, and it was an all-day trip to Orlando. You didn't get to just go there and come back quick like we do now. It was an all-day trip. We started before daylight, and we washboarded all the way to Orlando, and we washboarded back and got back after dark. Ruby Alba plays guitar and sings in the production Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. Well, the program today uh, started out with a little bit of silliness that we were on the ocean and we were uh, uh, by the sea, by the sea, and doing a little bit of silliness there. And then we got into a, a, a little bit more serious things where uh, we told a little bit about the cracker history and, you know, it's mosquitoes, alligators, and determination. There were a lot of mosquitoes. Back then, there were a lot of alligators, but I'm going to tell you what, the biggest letters in that whole sentence is determination, and I know for a positive fact that from listening to the stories at my granny's knee and what they did back then, that that determination had to go clean to the bone for them to be able to do the things that they did and survive in this country as wild as it was back then. Lady Gail Ryan is director of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble, the group staging Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. Raised in Miami, Ryan freely admits that until recently she did not have much respect for cracker culture. I felt that they were dumb, <laughs> quite frankly, and, and didn't have any kind of culture. And that's being raised in Miami with the palmettos and the alligators and the the uh, coral snakes and rattlesnakes and I went to New York and saw what New York was and I sure didn't want to be a cracker not knowing something so uh, 
so I grew up with the idea that they were dumb. <laughs> and when they asked me to do this for the library, I was upset. Uh, and I said, you know, I am a Florida-born. I am not a cracker. And she says, it's okay. You're going to find out something about it. And the more I looked, the more I realized that that Miami was an easier place to settle. It was further away, but it was an easier place. But what they went through here in the middle part of Florida was hell. And I don't know how they ever did it. I have no idea. Because it was bad enough when we were young, and we, you know, was was in the 29, 30, and 31. Um, but... It, but we still had it easier um, than they had in the middle part. They didn't have lights. They, their wells were hard to get. They had to go down to the creeks to get the water. And I learned what I found out is that they had ingenuity. They could do anything and fix anything. But they weren't interested particularly in the gold, which I unfortunately must say I, I was in being in Miami. I, I sort of let the glitter and the glitz um, spoil not spoil me, but make me think that that was better than being a real homebody. But since that time, I've really changed my mind um, that it was an unbelievable culture. While doing research to develop the Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination program, Ryan developed an appreciation for the resourcefulness of Florida pioneers. I must say that the library system in Florida is absolutely unbelievable. I called the library and I said, send me every book you can about early Florida. And they, they some something like 25 books and I began to going through them and then I began to choose stories and then I called on my my storytellers who are all I'm blessed they're all super intelligent people and love to read and so they were the ones that began I said how about this how about this how about this do you like this story and once they like a story then I insist that they do research and I tried to read as much as I could. I've been reading since last September on Florida about Florida and its history and it's been exciting. Lizzie Seal is a Florida transplant who tells some of the stories in this Cracker Culture program. Seal says that she's learned a lot by studying Cracker stories and music. I had always uh, thought of it as being, uh, not in a bad way, backwoods. Um, my family, you know, my father's family is from uh, eastern Tennessee, so I'm used to, uh, you know, what, what most people would look down upon as being backwoods culture, or these people don't know anything. So I, I knew that that was sort of the feeling of the crackers was that oh they were they don't know what they're doing we we've got a better idea of how we're gonna get this done um, but I, I didn't realize that um, there was such a frontier um, I knew that there were settlers and things like that but I didn't realize it was quite such a, a for lack of a better term wild west sort of uh, 
area for a while, a lot of gunfights, and uh, and I uh, had known about the cattle somewhat, but I had no idea of the, the length of the, the drive and all the things that they had to deal with and how it was so much so much more difficult than the things that they would have had to have faced out west. Yes, most people know about the Wild West and the OK Corral and Doc Holiday and all that stuff, but they don't know about, you know, the Cracker Trail or Bone Mizell or people that were just, just every bit as colorful as the people you'd find out west. The Brevard Theatrical Ensemble has added mosquitoes, alligators, and determination to their repertory, a 90-minute musical and dramatic celebration of cracker culture. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Be sure to check out our website at myfloridahistory.org. You can find out about activities at the Library of Florida History, look at historic photographs, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, please take a moment to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. Go to myfloridahistory.org to find out more. When Henry Flagler was building his East Coast Railway in the early 1900s, he didn't want to let running out of land stop his progress. As Janie Gould explains, Flagler wanted to have his railway link Florida's mainland with the Keys. 
Some people called it Flagler's Folly. The extension of the Florida East Coast Railway required laying track and building bridges through marshes and mangrove swamps and across open sea. Workers from all over the world dealt with heat, mosquitoes, and three hurricanes. The storms delivered major setbacks to the project between 1906 and 1910, so it must have been a celebration to remember when the first official train rolled into Key West. Flagler, who was 82 and in failing health, was helped from his private car. Looking around, he whispered to his aides, Now I can die fulfilled. By 1912, the year of the celebration, Joseph Washington Knowles of Fort Pierce had already been an engineer on Flagler's Railroad for many years. Former St. Lucie County Sheriff Bobby Knowles is his grandson. He was a living legend on that railroad because of his uh, longevity. He started in about 1898, and he ran his last engine in 1952. So for 54 years, this guy ran up and down the coast of Florida. And he also is the engineer that ran the first engine across the tracks in the Key West. Is that the one that brought Flagler to Key West for the big celebration? That's correct. Bobby Knowles has a clear recollection of his grandfather in later years. He was quite a gentleman. He was very tall, always wore engineer coveralls a blue long-sleeve shirt, a typical engineer, an engineer hat, a watch in his watch pocket. That was the only clothes I can remember him wearing until my grandmother and he had their 50th wedding anniversary, and he had on a, a dark suit for that. You mean even after he retired? Even after he retired. As a matter of fact, uh, I don't think he had a driver's license. He built a house at 710 Orange Avenue. And, of course, the depot was on 2nd Street. So he would walk from home to the depot. I'm sure he didn't have a driver's license. As a matter of fact, I would have known. Never saw him drive. But uh, he was just an engineer and a train man through and through. And when he retired, he would go down to the depot every day and sit on the benches there and talk with the other old-timers, and they'd listen for the trains to come in. They'd look at their watches, and they would say either number nine is on time or it's two minutes late, you know, just typical railroad talk. He really didn't have any hobbies because he just ran an engine for so long that when he retired, he was, you know, he, he was getting up there in years, but he would still go down to the depot. And as a matter of fact, his last hurrah is, I guess he couldn't stand it one day, and he actually got on an engine in the yard, <laughs> and, and he ran it up and down the yard for a while. Oh, he did. <laughs> Nobody did. stopped him? No, they they, <laughs> uh, they knew who he was, and fortunately, I mean, he could run an engine fine, but, you know, back in those days, everybody knew everybody, and I guess he just wanted to do it one more time. Railroading stayed in the family's blood. He and my grandmother had five boys. My father was the youngest of the five, and my father and the oldest boy actually worked for the railroad also. Bobby Knowles served as sheriff of St. Lucie County from 1985 until he retired in 2001. And a footnote, Flagler had big plans for his overseas railroad. An ad called it the fast, convenient, scenic route to Havana. Travelers from the Northeast would take the train to Key West and then a steamship to Cuba. Then, in 1935, a killer hurricane swept through the Upper Keys, destroying 40 miles of Flagler's track. A tidal wave swept over a rescue train and caused it to topple over. Henry Flagler's Key West extension was never rebuilt. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Many people are surprised to discover that people of African descent were on every one of the Spanish ships that came to Florida in the 1500s, making black people among the first non-indigenous people to come here. Bill Dudley has more. The year 2002 marked the 25th anniversary of Alex Haley's memorable TV miniseries, Roots, the story of an African family brought to America as slaves beginning in 1619. In fact, blacks played an active role in Florida well before this date. In May 2002, I talked to a historian working to uncover the surprising story of the African experience in Spanish colonial times. Everybody says 1619 is when African American history starts. Well, it doesn't. It started more than a century before that in Spanish Florida. Historian Jane Landers is director of the Center for Latin American and Iberian Studies at Vanderbilt University. So that 1513, we had free Africans with Ponce de Leon exploring Florida, claiming it for Spain, and partaking in all the danger and adventure of the early Caribbean conquests. We have identities for these people, we have names for these people, we have histories, we have their financial records. Landers is author of the award-winning book Black Society in Spanish Florida, said to be the first extensive study of African Americans during the centuries when Spain ruled the peninsula. Using Spanish documents, some never before examined, she's traced the lives and adventures of some of the blacks allied with Spanish explorers, for example. One of the men that I study is named Juan Garrido. He came from West Africa. He went to Lisbon, from Lisbon to Seville, where he got on a ship to come to the Americas. And he fought in the very earliest wars against the Indians on what is today Dominican Republic. From there, he hops over to Puerto Rico with Ponce de Leon, and from Puerto Rico to Florida. After the establishment of St. Augustine in 1565, more Africans came, both free and as slaves, building forts and settlements, fighting Indians, and a short time later, fighting English raiders from the Carolinas. Africans fought alongside Spaniards in militia units. They had officers of their own election. They had uniforms. They signed vows of loyalty to the Spanish king, and they were paid for their services. The earliest formal militia that I have found of a free black militia is 1681. 1683, I actually have the roster list for those people. The Spaniards kept very meticulous records with people's names. The reason for the record-keeping, Lander says, lies in a different cultural view of slavery itself. The Spanish considered it an accident of fate. A captured warrior, a convicted criminal, or a member of a conquered society could be made a slave. So under Roman law, which is the basis for both Spain and France in the New World, slavery is accidental. It's not connected to skin color. It's certainly not connected to any defect in your character. And it's a legal condition which is not going to be permanent. It's quite different then than the English system, which evolved later in which we call chattel slavery. 
in which slaves are considered like a piece of movable property with no identity, no rights, and so on. In the Roman law, you could also exit slavery in various ways. You could buy your way out, the state could free you, your owner could free you for any sort of meritorious service, and military service was one of the ways people worked their way out of slavery. Runaway slaves migrated into Florida from the Carolinas to join the Spanish as farmers and soldiers. Many became Roman Catholics. In the early 1700s, St. Augustine's slaves and free blacks had their own settlement, Fort Mose. It lasted until 1763, when by treaty, the Spanish gave Florida to the British and moved everyone to the island of Cuba. These interesting Africans who began their life in Africa, escaped from Carolina, come to Florida, and now they're on boats going to Cuba. And I've tracked some of these people to Cuba. By going through sacramental records in Cuba, I'm able to at least say where some of them ended up. The Spanish government considered them just like any other citizen, and resettled them, along with all the other Spanish people, in Cuba. Gave them homestead lands, gave them subsidies, gave them tools, and so on. And so I'm able to track some of their lives even on into Cuba, and they will die in Cuba. But Landers believes much of this history was in effect erased as Florida became part of the antebellum South. The more limited role for Africans during that antebellum South and through the Jim Crow era to me, is the anomaly, and we need to see the longer, longer picture to appreciate the full range of the African experience in Florida. Why are these people's stories important to us today? Well, the reason I think it's important is because it's a model for race relations that is somewhat different than we see elsewhere. When I'm teaching students, they really are in great despair often about the forecast for the future because of the hardening racial lines that sometimes are on both sides, you know, and I, I hate to see that happening. And I think Florida is one of those places where if you study it, you realize that people of all different colors and ethnicities and backgrounds can make a community together. But that's what it means to me. Historian Jane Landers, I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. For more information, log on to our website, flahum.org. been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Until next week, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. Thank you.